You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, if you would join me there. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Kids, let me get myself in the right place here. You are dismissed for Redemption Hill Kids, ages 2 through 5 go together, then grades 1 to 3. And if you're in grades 1 to 3, please note that you will be meeting on the first and third week. So that's just a helpful reminder. I didn't think of that. I'm not that creative. My lovely wife did. First to third grade, first and third weeks. Next week, we'll have grades four and five together. Uh, Dean, if your heart and mind are ready right now, please come and share the word with us. I guess. I don't think I have an option. Truly, my deepest apologies for not being here, and we'll work on the sound as we go here because I forgot my glasses. And I had to drive some 20 to 25 minutes back home to get them. I can see things very meticulously about a mile away. But when it comes to up close and reading, I I would be a disaster up here apart from these glasses. So let me say a quick word of prayer to get our minds right as we approach this very interesting text. Oh, God in heaven. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, as I gather myself and gather my notes, bear with me. One of the great eras of in the history of Christianity, frankly, was the mid to late 1600s in England. It was a period of time of reformation in England with great leaders and theologians and pastors who wrote a great deal. J.I. Packer has been aptly noted to call those individuals the California redwoods of the forest of Christianity. These these were spiritual giants. 
And during that era, there was an unusual friendship forged between two of those redwoods. And they could not be any more different. One was the scholarly and well-educated and affluent John Owen, perhaps the greatest theologian in the history of England. And the other, John Bunyan, who was poor, uneducated, but self-taught. And Owen was a Congregationalist. Bunyan was a Baptist, but they shared a common Reformed belief and system, a, a conviction of Reformed theology. And they both longed for the purity of the church. And, of course, John Bunyan spent 12 years of his life in a Bedford jail because he would not bow the knee to the Church of England, and he preached the gospel without their ordination. And I'm, I recall a conversation that John Owen had, because John Owen would come listen to this gifted preacher, John Bunyan, who would preach to thousands, and he learned and honed that skill in a jail in Bedford, 40 miles northwest of London. And, and Owen would come hear him, and he, during a conversation with King Charles II, Charles II, Charles II asked John Owen, why do you come and hear this tinker preach? And Owen responded, he said, if it would please the, thy majesty, if I would give up all of my vast learning to preach and touch people's hearts like this man, John Bunyan. And in that unusual friendship, there was an unusual providence because John Bunyan would be jailed again in Bedford in the mid-1870s. And John Owen would be the one petitioning for his release. But during that time, God had other plans because the release would be delayed time and time again. And it was during that period of time that John Bunyan wrote the classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. And ultimately, Bunyan was released. And I'm reminded of the quote from George Whitfield, who later preached during the First Great Awakening. He loved this book. He says, the book Pilgrim's Progress smells of the prison. Ministers never write or preach of Christ as when under the cross. The Spirit of Christ and of glory then rests upon them. And so, upon the release, John Owen was instrumental in circulating the classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. It ultimately became such a bestseller, one of the best-selling books of all time, translated in over 200 languages. It is an outstanding book, one that I greatly love, one that I've taken my kids through. And it is the story of an and it's an allegory, of the Christian life itself. It's filled with biblical analogies and illustrations. And the main pro protagonist is a man by the name of Christian. And Christian experiences a conversion and goes on a journey from this city of destruction, which would lead to the ultimate destination, the celestial city representing heaven, and he encounters many characters and engages 
in many battles during this journey. He experiences all kinds of temptations and trials and goes through peaks and valleys. It is a fight of faith to the very end. John Piper has written, as he compares modern-day American evangelicalism with the spirit of that age, the golden era in England, he says that there is today a cavalier, superficial attitude toward the ongoing daily intensity of personal faith because people don't believe that their eternal life depends on it. We are a hundred miles from the great Puritan Baptist John Bunyan in whose great work the Pilgrim's Progress showcases how Christian fought, struggled, and labored his whole life until he was safe in the celestial city. This book serves as a relevant picture for us this morning. It is a picture of the Christian life. And the Christian life, I would remind you, is extremely difficult. It is filled with trials and temptations and peaks and valleys. But I want to bring attention to a particular illustration, a chilling one, in this wonderful book. It is the story of Christian's encounter with the man in despair locked in an iron cage. I just want to read a few highlights. And Christian asked this man, what art thou? To which the man in despair in the iron cage responds, I am what I was not once. And, what, and he says, what is that? And the man responds, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in mine own eyes and in the eyes of others. I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy of the thoughts of getting there. And then Christian asks, but what art thou now? I am now a man of despair, and I am shut up in it, as in an iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. I have sinned against the light of the word, the goodness of God. I've grieved the spirit and he is gone. I have so hard in my heart, I cannot repent. Christian asks, is there no hope? Man responds, no, none at all. Why? Christian asks. The son of the blessed is very pitiful. The man in the iron cage I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, and they are gnawing me like a burning worm. Christian then asked, But canst not thou now repent and turn? To which the man responds, God hath denied me repentance. Yes, he himself has shut me in this iron cage, nor can all the men in this world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity. How shall I grapple with this, the misery that I must meet in eternity? And I think that John Bunyan 
vividly and even disturbingly captures the essence of the text that we're looking at here this morning in Hebrews chapter 6. It is one of the more difficult and disturbing texts in all of the New Testament. And it has been fiercely contested over the years and debated. And I want to begin with a few qualifiers before I preach. Without question that this text is a very highly emotional text for all of us here. Many of you here sitting knows of someone, perhaps publicly, who you benefited from that that pretty much chucked the faith and walked away. Perhaps there's a, a family member very close that's dear to you that has walked away from the faith that you care about. I want it to be said here and now that God will forgive the prayer of anyone who will repent. But here in the text, we have to be honest with the reality that it seems to describe an individual who has has deliberately abandoned his faith and now whose heart is so hard that he's unable to repent. This is the essence of apostasy. But if, but the, the thing about that is none of us, only God knows who those individuals are. So that the doors of the church are wide open for anyone who repents and returns, much like the prodigal son. Also, we need to understand, apostasy is not the same thing as backsliding. We've heard that term, backsliding. Christians do and will fall into sin. I can only think of the two clearest examples in the New Testament where these are juxtaposed against each other. You have Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ, who fell away, who committed apostasy, and there was no repentance to be found in him. He went out and hung himself. And then you have Peter, who denied Christ three times, who fell, who fell into sin, but was restored by Christ through repentance and became one of the pillars of the early church. Yes, understand this, that the normal Christian life is a struggle, is a battle that even Paul experienced in Romans chapter 7. I do those things which I do not want to do, and I don't do those things which I do want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That's the picture in Pilgrim's Progress. Spiritual growth, and the flow of this text is, spiritual growth is demanded of us. In, in chapter 6, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says we need to go on to maturity. But he also says in verse 3, this we will do if God permits. So I'm reminded of St. Augustine's quote, command what thou willest 
and give what thou commandest. Any growth, any hint of holiness in your life, in my life, is by God's grace alone. Now, before we get into the text, real briefly, the theme of Hebrews has been established for weeks. And I want to remind you, as um, D.A. Carson writes, the great New Testament scholar, that the general theme of Hebrews is not in dispute. It is the unqualified supremacy of God's Son, Jesus Christ, a supremacy that brooks no challenge, whether from angelic or human beings. Correlatively, man, spit that out. Correlatively, the covenant he has inaugurated is superior to any covenant that has preceded it. His priesthood is better than Levi's. The sacrifice he has offered is superior to those offered under the Mosaic Code. And in fact, the very purpose of antecedent revelation was to anticipate him and point to him and to all the blessings he has brought with him. In essence, Jesus Christ is superior. Jesus Christ satisfies. Jesus Christ is supreme. His sacrifice is sufficient. So why would anyone turn their back on that and walk away? So we come to the text. And the brunt of our time will be in verses 4 through 6. And I want to try to answer two overriding questions regarding the text. That's going to kind of come out throughout the message here. Who are these people described here? What is their spiritual, in essence, what is their spiritual condition? And then how are we to understand this language? Briefly, there are three prominent views that are held regarding this hotly debated passage in verses 4 through 6. Let me read it real quick. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good news, goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then having fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Stop right there. Three prominent views, real briefly. The first one is the hypothetical theory, the hypothetical view, that this is a hypothetical statement. These are true Christians, the, the argument goes. And the word if, which is not in the ESV translation, but it's in most translations, it says, if they fall away, they base that argument on the word if, and it, it, says, it, it, acts, it says if they were ever to do this, then this would be the case. But it could never happen. Hypothetical. The hypothetical view held by many very well-known and knowledgeable individuals. The problem with that, as I just noted earlier, is the Greek text does not contain the word if. And that's why the ESV actually gets the translation right when it says 
then having fallen away, not if. <clears throat> it also strips away, to say something is hypothetical, is to strip the power of the warning itself. What do you do with all of the other warnings throughout Hebrews? What do you do with Hebrews 10.26? Is that hypothetical? Also, we've already covered a text in Hebrews chapter 3 where it says to not drift away, to not harden yourself. And it gives the classic example of Israel in the wilderness committing apostasy. Was that apostasy hypothetical? The second view is the Arminian view. They would also argue that the text describes here true Christians. True Christians who were truly saved, but they lost their salvation. That view has a problem with the text itself because if you read, it says it's impossible to restore them again meaning they cannot get their salvation back. And you and I have probably run into people who will say that you can lose your salvation, but get, get it back again. It's just depending on the day. It's a very insecure way to walk with God. To be fair, the origin, the origin of Arminian theology began in the 1600s, and his name was Jacob Arminius. He actually did hold the view that you could lose your salvation and never give it, get it back. So he was consistent. But the clear teaching of Scripture, if you, if you look at your Bible at John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The they may come back and say, well, can you jump out of the Father's hand? That's the argument. That's the counter argument. Well, is our ability to jump out of God's hand stronger than his determination to hold us in his hand? I wasn't here for the early reading of 1 Peter, but it says that we have an inheritance undefiled, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God, through faith. God keeps those whom he saves. If we all had the ability to jump out, all of us would have jumped out a long time ago. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 So, we come to the third view, which is the view that I subscribe to. It is the Reformed view and it says that these individuals described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, are in fact professing Christians, not true Christians. These are individuals who have been exposed to the gospel and have been impacted by the gospel and have shown outward signs of being impacted by the gospel. 
course, those who would object to that view would say, this certainly looks like the genuine article to me. And then I would respond with a name. Judas Iscariot. The same description here could be described of one disciple named Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot was so unrecognizable as an apostate that to the very end of the ministry of Christ, as they sat down at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they looked at each other and said, is it, is it I? They had no idea. He looked so real. The Reformed view teaches that there are those who make professions of faith in Christ who do fall away, but who were never in. I, I remind you of 1 John 2.19. The Apostle John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, no doubt they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they not, are not all of us. This is the teaching of the perseverance of the saints. You will never, I hope you will never hear me use the phrase, once saved, always saved. That's dangerous. Perseverance of the saints is top in Scripture. Jesus said that at the end of the age, many will fall away. Their love will grow cold, Matthew 24. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Who are those who are endured to the end? They're not saved because they endured to the end. They endure to the end because they were saved. Look at Jeremiah 32, 40. This is often, in all of this discussion and in all of these debates, people overlook this verse. And in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, God says this. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. What God begins, he will finish. So how are we to understand the language? How are we to understand the language of this text? It says they were enlightened, they tasted of the heavenly gift, they shared in the Holy Spirit's power, they tasted of the goodness of the word of God. It sure sounds like a Christian. Here's another point to make regarding that. This language here, if you compare it with other texts in the New Testament, think of Romans chapter 8. This is a description of a Christian. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That's not in the text. Terms of salvation are not found in the text. What also is not found in the text? Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's the language describing a Christian. And if that language was here, we would have a problem. 
also note in verses 1 through 3, the writer speaks in the first person pronoun. Verses 1, he talks about let us. Verse 3, if God, this we will do. And then he changes pronouns into the third person in verses 4 through 6. If they, speaking in the third person. And then he moves back because, frankly, if, if we stop at verse 8, we're all kind of depressed. Because look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, first person, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that accompany, things that belong to salvation. Now, real briefly again, there are two possible approaches in understanding the language of verses 4 through 6. There's the sacramental approach. This is a description and uh, in this view that when it says they were once enlightened, it has reference to baptism, which was a view of the early church, by the way, for the first several centuries. In the tasting of the heavenly gift, that's the Lord's table. The sharing of the Holy Spirit, laying on of hands. The tasting of the word, sitting under the preaching of the word, seeing signs and wonders which accompanied the word. Can someone experience all that and not be a Christian? Certainly. That's a, that's a fair approach. There's another approach. It's the, the approach that says this is symbolic of, it has exodus symbolism. And so it would say that the pillar of light that led the nation of Israel is the enlightenment, that the people of Israel tasted the manna from heaven, and they tasted the word of God through Moses. They saw the works of the power of the Spirit of God as they were delivered from Egypt. And that would be a consistent view with all of the other warning passages of Hebrews. There is that Exodus language. But I don't think it needs to be limited, limited to these two views. I think there's truth in all of these, these approaches in understanding the language, but I think it, it can be applied much more broadly. These approaches affirm that these are false professors in the context of the church. And we need to understand that when it says they tasted they were enlightened, they, were, they shared, they tasted. This is all in the aorist tense, in the verb of a past act. Now, let's look at that word enlightened, verse 4 through, verse 4 right there. It says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, that word enlightened is from the Greek word photizo, and it means to give light by knowledge or teaching. It's to be instructed, informed, without any necessary response. In Matthew chapter 13, we have a picture of this group in the parable of the sower in verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Look at, the, look at verse 4 of Hebrews 6. It says that they, 
tasted of the heavenly gift. You may say, well, that certainly sounds like someone who's experienced Christianity. And certainly, as we stated earlier, there is something greater than even the Lord's table here. Jesus is the incomparable gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Jesus is the gift from God as Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus is the bread of life. But he is not to be tasted or sampled. He is to be feasted on. In fact, Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must take all of me or you have no life in you. It's not enough to give mere intellectual assent to facts. The demons believe the gospel. The demons are orthodox in their theology, much more orthodox than church men these days. It says they shared in the Holy Spirit. That's a tough one. Sharers of the Holy Spirit or partakers. The word share is metakos in the Greek. It has to do with association, not possession. It is used of fellow fishermen in Luke chapter 5. Sharing an associ- a common association, common events. They share in it, but they do not possess it. We all know of individuals who have been under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who have made a, quote, decision for Christ. Many have walked an aisle. Many have gone to a crusade. And they've gone forward. And they can point back to that time. And yet, it's years later and there is absolutely, absolutely no change in their life. And they're, they're not even involved in the church. They're not involved in spiritual things. You can be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and not be saved. You can share in the Holy Spirit and not be saved. That's why Hebrews warns repeatedly, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. God says in Genesis 6, 3, my spirit will not always strive with man. And these individuals certainly felt the Holy Spirit. They saw the works of the Holy Spirit. Remember Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? He loved the works and power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter told him to perish. Look at verse 5. It says they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. It is not enough to to hear the word. It is not enough to sit under great preaching. It's not enough just to taste the word of God. God calls us to feast on them. Jeremiah says, your words I found and I ate them. They became for me a joy and delight to my heart. And a real tragedy is that there are many that have sat under great preaching and yet fall short 
because they just merely tasted or heard. But they didn't receive the words of life. And it's not enough just to sit. People stand up in pulpits. I saw an interview on YouTube done by a very well-known news agency interviewing a Christian, quote, former Christian leader who wrote best-selling books and pastored for almost two decades. I have one of his books on my bookshelf. And the man in the interview who left his wife and family and left the ministry apologized, apologized for how he had misled people. Now, we pray for his restoration. But that is the true description of someone who has repudiated and abandoned their commitment to the supreme living Jesus Christ. We live in the age of deconstruction. Everybody's deconstructing everything. We don't have that option. Matthew chapter 7, I'm reminded of even some more haunting words Jesus himself says. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful works, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's strong in the Greek. It says he never, ever knew them, never had a relationship with them. These weren't true Christians. These were professors. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This, this is a description of Hebrews 6. They tasted of the word of God, the, the gift from heaven. The, they shared in the Holy Spirit. They've seen miracles. And these are shocking words. And Jesus says, many. And there's so much done in the name of Christ these days that makes you tremble, that they, do they even understand the holiness of God? I'm convinced, and I don't, I'm, I, I, this is the view that I hold from Scripture. Jesus said, few there be that will be saved. Only a few. And the disciples had the same observation. They, they asked him, in Luke chapter 13, they asked Jesus, are there only a few that are saved? That was their observation. And Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. These are shocking words, but they must be heard. Now look at verses 6 through 8 as we bring this to a close. The individuals in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that they were enlightened, they tasted of the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted of the goodness of the word of God, the powers of age to come. That's all in the aorist tense. Now in verse 6, and then having fallen away, that's in the aorist tense, past act, a past act to restore them again to repentance. That may seem shocking to you, but if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, 
the writer of Hebrews will later tell us and warn us not to be like Esau. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. There was no place for repentance for Esau. And it says of these individuals that they, though they commit this apostasy in the past, it says they crucify, they are crucifying. That's a present tense word. They are presently crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the, the, the pastor and writer that was interviewed by that news station Though he made that decision in, his past, in the past to walk away, every day, this is the reality. He is crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. John Piper writes this. He says, When a person chooses against Christ and turns back to the way of the world and the sovereignty of his own will, and the fleeting pleasures of earth, he says in effect that these are worth more than Christ is worth. Look at verses 7 through 8 as we wrap this up. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and it is its end is to be burned so you have these this these two soils who are experiencing and receiving enlightenment they're receiving the heavenly gift they're they're they're, they're tasting the heavenly gift they're being exposed to the heavenly gift they're sharing in the holy spirit their tasting of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And only one soil produces fruit, which is another argument that these are two different audiences, the genuine article and the one who only professes. Now, you might sit there and say, but I just don't, I don't see much fruit in my life. Welcome to the club. That is an attitude of someone who has not rejected Christ, but someone who is honest about their own spiritual condition, someone who longs for holiness. None of us are as fruitful as we want to be. None of us are displaying a botanical garden. But there is some fruit 
There is some fruit. We're not teaching perfectionism. We're teaching normal Christian experience. It is a daily struggle. It is a daily battle. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6 as I wrap this up. I want to end on a high note. In John chapter 6, real briefly, Jesus has performed miracles. He has fed 5,000. He's multiplied fish and loaves. He's walked on water. He's declared himself the bread of life. Listen to this promise. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the one who comes to me, I will never turn away. But he did preach and teach very hard truths. Jesus was not a proponent of easy believism. Jesus was not a proponent of cheap grace. Jesus taught hard. And you see in the text here, in verse 66, and after this hard teaching, after Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turns to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Now, Peter had many low moments. But this is one of his highest moments. Listen to Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John would later write in his first epistle, he that has the Son has eternal life. Do you have the Son? May God in his grace help you and I to cling to him as his right hand upholds us continuously. Psalm 63, 8. Amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.